All right. Good morning. How you guys doing this morning? Awesome. Uh, well, I'd like to uh, start out and uh, get my presentation working uh, and pray for Pastor Barry. So uh, I, I'm so glad, uh, you know, to be here, but I'm, I'm even more glad that he's home. He's resting and recovering. So uh, let's pray for him, shall we? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before you. And uh, God, we thank you for your answer to prayer, Lord God. As we prayed for you to, to touch Pastor Barry, Lord, we prayed that he would be uh, removed from the hospital and able to go home, Lord. And so we rejoice in that, Lord. We thank you for that. And so, God, we pray that you would just continue to put your hand upon him, Lord, that you would touch his body, that you would strengthen him, Lord, heal him. We pray, Lord. So would you just be with him, Lord, we pray. And uh, we ask all these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, anybody uh, ready to uh, have some church today? Okay. Then I, th- I think uh, you came to the right place. Um, so the uh, the title of the message today uh, is relentless, relentless, and uh, that word is defined. Webster defines this word as showing or promising. No lessening of severity, intensity, strength, or pace. But see, the thing is, that word, often when it's used, it has a negative connotation associated with it, right? Even many of the definitions uh, use it this way. For example, some, uh, one definition for relentless is oppressively constant, incessant. The example they use is the relentless heat of the desert. Or another example, harsh or inflexible, a patient but relentless taskmaster. How many guys uh, know somebody who would fit that description? Relentless. But see, one of the things that comes to mind perhaps when we talk about this word relentless is the way that a predator relentlessly pursues its prey, right? It's just going after it and it's not going to stop until... It catches it, you know, so if you're the predator, perhaps that's a good thing for you. And if you're the prey, you're not going to have a good day. Let's just say that, right? So, But the thing is, whether this word is positive or negative, it, it comes down to the context, right? It really comes down to who is doing the pursuing and what is the purpose for the pursuit. And so simply adding one word into the context of the word relentless completely shifts the connotation from negative to positive. And that one word that changes everything is love. Relentless love. In the context of the word love, relentless becomes a beautiful word. It's actually a beautiful thing. Now in our world today, the word love has been so convoluted and so watered down, it's, it's virtually lost its meaning. The love conveyed by media and Hollywood and what the world will try to sell us as love is nothing but a sad and a cheap imitation. It bears little resemblance, if any, to what the Bible defines as real love. The world's concept of love is self-serving, conditional, and fickle. Right. But God's love is the exact 
opposite. And that's what we're going to see today as we dive into our text. We're going to see a vivid and a graphic picture of what real love looks like and how God's love for us is, in fact, relentless. So go ahead and turn to the book of Hosea, the book of Hosea, Old Testament prophet, first of the minor prophets there, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. Now, Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom. Remember, this was after the kingdom had split. We had the southern kingdom uh, of Judah and the northern kingdom. And so Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom. And what was going on at the time was Israel was actually doing very well. They were very prosperous. They were doing great economically. They were doing great materially. They were very prosperous. However, they were in pretty bad shape morally. They were in bad shape Spiritually, because they had fallen deeply into idolatry. But the crazy thing is, even though they were committing idolatry, they had not ceased to worship God. They were still worshiping God alongside these idols. See, they didn't reject God, but they simply began to add the worship of Baal alongside their worship of God. So they continued to go through the motions spiritually. They would offer sacrifices and they would go through their religious ceremonies to God. But their hearts were hard. And their hearts were far from Him. And because they were materially prosperous, they did not put their confidence in God because they didn't sense their need for God. They put their trust in their political alliances, alliances with Assyria and Egypt. And, but they had very much gone after the things of the world. The things of the world had captured their heart. So in such a time as this, the man called, God called a man named Hosea to deliver a message to the people. And he revealed a prophecy to him. But God not only called Hosea to proclaim God's message to his people, but he called him to live This message, and in a sense, to be the message that God had for His people. See, in the Old Testament, many of the the, the prophets were called to do some pretty extreme things, some pretty crazy things to really illustrate to the people what was going on and what God needed to do. And and so God had called Hosea to, to bring to light what was going on in the hearts of the people. And so, really, what God had called Isaiah to do. Or, or Hosea, rather, to do was, was perhaps one of the most shocking of all. This message, this prophecy given to Hosea tells of how God would bring some judgment upon the children of Israel, how they would be conquered and captured by the nation of Assyria. However, they would not be destroyed. And they would ultimately be restored. God would ultimately restore Israel. So this story, what God called Hosea to do in this message, is literally the story of God calling a prophet to marry a prostitute. A prostitute named Gomer. Now, just a little side note. uh, Do not misinterpret this text. This is not the way that God has prescribed for guys to go and find the one that he has for them, okay? This is very much the exception. This is not the rule, okay? He did this for a purpose. This was a very specific thing. 
that God had called him to do. So make no mistake about that. So the story that we're going to see of Hosea is contained in chapters uh, 1 through 3 of the book of Hosea. And so we're going to be reading through these verses and following this story as it unfolds. And, and as we do this, we're going to pull out uh, three characteristics. And we'll see three characteristics of God's relentless love. We're going to see this is a beautiful picture, a beautiful uh, illustration of God's love for his people and God's love for us. And as we go through this, there's really three layers uh, in this story, there's three elements, three aspects to it. Number one, there's the relationship between Homer, or not Homer, Hosea and Gomer. The relationship between God and the Israel. And there's also a beautiful prophetic picture of Christ and his church. And so we're going to see all three of these elements, these aspects, as we go through this. And so, uh, again, in this story, um, Gomer who is a a prostitute. She represents the spiritual adultery of Israel. And Hosea represents God and the love that God has, as we'll see. But the thing is, like, he refers to uh, Israel's idolatry as spiritual adultery. And as he's using this image and, and calling Hosea to go and marry a prostitute... That, that might seem like extreme, like, okay, I know idolatry is like a bad thing, but like that picture, like, is that maybe like too much? Is that an exaggeration? The crazy thing is it's no exaggeration at all because the worship of Baal, they considered Baal to be a God that, that would bring fertility to their crops, right? And so they would uh, pray to him and worship him to try to uh, have rain fall down and that he would bless their crops and it would bring fertility. And so what they would do in the worship of Baal is they would commit these sexually immoral acts with temple prostitutes in trying to provoke the fertility, if you will. So by God calling this idolatry, spiritual adultery, is really no exaggeration at all. He's literally just kind of calling them out for exactly... What they're doing, these vile things, and just, which is just an indication of how far they had, how far they had fallen, and how far their hearts had drifted from the Lord. And so, really, the, the point that this sets up, as we'll see, as Hosea is called to go and marry this prostitute, this this man of God would draw the question for people to say, Hosea. You're you're a man of God. How could you go and marry a woman like that? How could you go and love a woman like that? Which set it up for him to display the truth and the message that God was communicating, which is how could a righteous and holy God love such a wicked and rebellious people as you? That was the point. That's the message that God was communicating. And so Hosea was called to exemplify this message and to be that message. And so let's go ahead and read uh, starting in chapter one, Hosea. Uh, If you don't mind, would you all stand? We're going to read Hosea chapter one, verses one through nine. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Beiri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. 
When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry, for the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu and bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bore a daughter. Then God said to him, Call her name Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer have mercy on the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. Yet I will have mercy on the house of Judah and will save them by the Lord their God and will not save them by the bow nor by the sword or battle, by horses or horsemen. Now when he had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she conceived and bore a son. Then God said, Call his name Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your message, God. We thank you for your love for us, God, your unconditional love. So Lord, would you speak to us today through your word? Would you speak to us the the word that you would say to us, Lord God, the message that you have for us today? May it be received. May our hearts be soft soil to receive and respond to the word you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So here we see the story as God has called Hosea to go and marry this, this woman of harlotry, Gomer. And so he goes and he marries Gomer and they go on to have three children. And again, this is all a, a, a sign and an illustration of what God is going to do through Israel. And so uh, if you see in verse 4 there, it says, Then they called uh, the first child. His name was Jezreel. For in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu. And so the, the word Jezreel, it means scattered or sown. The way that they would sow seed in that day is they would kind of have a bag and they would kind of scatter it and toss it out. And so this was an illustration of what God was going to do to the nation of Israel through Assyria, that they would be conquered and that they would be scattered. And then they go on and there's a, a second child born, a daughter called Lo Ruhamah, which means no mercy or not loved. And uh, which again is is a symbol of what the people were doing, that they were rejecting God and that they were not acting as his people. And so then she has a third child and the child is named Lo Ami, which is not my people. The, the word Lo there, it means not so he says, Lo Ami, not my people. And so the children's names here kind of represent what, what God is going to do. And the, the crazy thing about it, um, especially if you look at, at the third child, Lo Ami, not my people, is that um, you, you see what Jezreel says that it bore him a, a child. But the other two, it just says that she bore a child. And so uh, the indication there is that these are children of adultery, that these are not even Hosea's children. That now he has taken this wife, this wife of harlotry, 
and and they've begun to, to try to build a family and she is already going out and continuing to commit harlotry and adultery, being unfaithful to him. And so in this, we see the way that this righteous man of God was called to go and love this woman of harlotry, Gomer. It reveals to us the first characteristic of God's love for us. And God's, the first characteristic of God's love for us is that God's love is undeserved. God's love for us is absolutely, categorically undeserved by us. God's love for us is not based on what we've done. God's love for us is not based on who we are. Romans 5.8 says this, it says, But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. And so what we see in this, this, this picture, the story of Hosea, is we see a picture and a portrait and a foreshadowing of the gospel. And we see that that's exactly how Jesus died for us. That it's not because of what we've done or anything of who we are. But it's because of God's love for us. And so the thing that we need to realize, the point I want to make on this, is that God does not love us because of who we are. God loves us in spite of who we are. Right? God's love for us is not because of who we are. It's not because of what we've done. It's because of Him. It is in spite of that. And as broken as Gomer was in her condition of harlotry, God has taken us in, in our brokenness. Amen? You don't have to clean yourself up to come to Christ. You come to Christ and He will clean you up. Amen? Can anyone testify to that? Many people think, oh, I can't go to church. I'm too messed up. I'm too messed up to go to church. Are you kidding me? That's like being in an accident and saying, I can't go to the hospital, I've just been hurt. It's like the very thing you are avoiding is the one thing that you need the most, right? And so notice that God did not, or Hosea rather, did not go to, to, to Gomer and say, you need to clean yourself up, you need to fix yourself, you need to change these things. And if you do, if you do a good enough job at that, then I will love you, then I will take you, then I will marry you. Is that what he did? How did he take her? He took her just as she was. Hosea's love for Gomer was undeserved. God's love for us is undeserved as well. In chapter 2, we see how Gomer continued in her harlotry, in her unfaithfulness in this marriage. Just as the nation of Israel continued in their spiritual adultery. Chapter 2, picking up in verse 2 of chapter 2. Uh, it says this, speaking to Jezreel, bring charges against your mother, bring charges, for she is not my wife, nor am I her husband. Let her put away her harlotries from her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and expose her as in the day she was born. And will make her like a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy on her children, for they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. She who conceived them has behaved shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my linen and my oil and my drink. Pause there. So here Gomer 
She ultimately ends up leaving Hosea. And she goes after these other lovers. You know, she stayed with him uh, for a while. But, you know, the thing that we see is the way that this started was, you know, as these children were born, as she was uh, in the home, is she didn't leave him initially. She brought other people into her life, right? She didn't leave him initially. She brought other people in. And so that's the same thing that Israel had done. They had not outright rejected God, but they brought in the worship of other gods into the mix. And see, the problem was God was not their one and only. God was only one of many. And so the thing that I think we need to realize today is what is modern day idolatry? You know, as we look at this, we might look down at the children of Israel and, 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 and the acts that they were behaving and go, man, that's so, can't believe it, you know. Those people were really messed up. But what is modern day adultery, idolatry? You don't have to bow down to some little idol and do some kind of a weird ritual. Really, idolatry is anything that challenges the throne of God on your heart. Right? There is only room for one on that throne, and that is for God and God alone. Amen? Deuteronomy 6 5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. God's not looking for 90% of your heart. God's not looking for 95% of your heart. It is all or nothing. There's no room on that throne for anyone or anything else. God, to, For God to be on your throne, He dwells there alone. Right? That, that throne of your heart is for God and for Him alone. And so we need to ask ourselves, is there things in our lives that are challenging the throne, competing for the throne of God in our hearts and in our lives? Because that's where it started with Gomer. That's where it started with the children of Israel. That's the way it starts with you and with me. Small, simple, subtle compromises, right? Satan doesn't tempt us like, hey, you want to go throw your life away and become an alcoholic? Right? Doesn't sound too appealing, right? He knows we're not quite that stupid, at least most of the time. Start simple, small, subtle compromises. Hey, it's just, it's just going out to lunch with this person that's not your spouse. Oh, it's just, you know, catching a cup of coffee. Oh, it's just one drink. But what do we know? That one thing leads to another and we've been set on a course, on a path that leads to destruction. Guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. Let God reign on that throne and let Him reign there alone. Amen. Verse 6 picks up. It says this, chapter 2, verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up your way with thorns, and I will wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. And she will chase her lovers, but she will not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband. For then it was better for me than now. For she, check this out, verse 8, For she did not know that I gave her grain, new wine, and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Now this is crazy. It says Gomer left and she's pursuing these others. And notice how she's accrediting these things, the oil and the wine and these provisions to her lovers. She had left Hosea. And it says here, all the while, it was Hosea that was providing for her. 
Hosea was providing for her needs. She was out, you know, uh, involved with these people that didn't care about her. They weren't providing for her. And so Hosea, in his love for her, this undeserved love for her, provided for her and she did not even know it. Now that's pretty messed up, right? It says there that the things that they prepared for Baal, right? So essentially the stuff that he's providing is being used for, the, for this, these false idols and worship. But we do the same thing, guys. We do the same thing when we use, when we sin. When we sin, check this out, we use the gifts that God has given us to sin against Him. Every time we sin, we are using what God has given us to sin against Him. God gives you the very breath that is in your lungs. And for us to commit sin, do you realize that it is God who's giving you the very energy, the very breath, the very beating in your chest to commit the sin that you're committing against the God that created you and loves you? Satan has nothing to offer us. All he can do is take the blessings and the provisions of God and offer them to us in a way that can be used for corruption. Satan has nothing to offer. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above and comes down from the Father of light. Satan has nothing to offer. But you know what Satan wants to do? Satan wants to take what God has given us to bless us. And get us to use it in a way that will destroy us. That's Satan's plan. That's Satan's tactic. He takes the good things of God. And tries to give them to us. And make us use them in ways that will destroy us. Verse 9. It says, therefore, I will return and take away my grain in its time and my new wine in its season and will take back my wool and my linen given to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers and no one shall deliver her from my hand. And I will also cause her, cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths and her appointed feasts. Verse 11 there, these, these feast days, these new moons, these festivals, these are religious ceremonies, right? As far as they had drifted, they were still giving these token worship to God. They were essentially still going to church. They were doing the church thing. They were going through the motions, even though their hearts were so far from God. Guys, there's too many Christians or professing Christians, should I say, that think that they can live in the world, that they can live in sin. But if they make it back to church on Sunday, hey, God's everything's good, right? Going to church on Sunday does not make everything right. God's looking at our heart. We cannot live one way during the week and then try to change everything up and think that God is fooled. There's, there's one person that's fooled when that happens, and that's you. God's not fooled by that. We are the only ones that are fooled when we do that. Verse 12, he says, And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, of which she has said, These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will punish her for the days of the Baals, to which she burned incense, and decked herself in her earrings and her jewelry, and went off uh, after her lovers. But me, she forgot, says the Lord. So here is a, a reference to... The judgment that God's going to bring, right? God is going to 
bring Assyria in and they were going to conquer, they were going to capture Israel. And God was going to deal with them. The time had come. They would be captured, they would be scattered. And so the thing that we see from this is, although God loves us, even though God loves us in spite of our sin, that does not mean that He approves of it. Right? That doesn't mean He approves of it. So many people think, oh, if I sin, well, God will forgive me. Right? You cannot continue on in a life of sin. God does not accept it. Talking about the love of God, that's a pretty popular thing to talk about these days in church. There's a lot of churches that like to talk about the love of God. Everybody wants to hear how much God loves them, but it's not so popular to talk about God's intolerance for sin. It's not so popular to talk about righteousness and holiness and sanctification and repentance, right? Those are not on the top of the list of things that people are looking for. But guys, that's the whole gospel. That's the whole gospel. You can't just talk about how much God loves us and not talk about repentance and not talk about the work that God wants to do in our lives. It's been said that God loves you as you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. Amen. He loves you the way you are, but he is not going to leave you that way. Come to him messed up. Come to him in your brokenness. Come to him in your weakness. Come to him and he's going to fix you up. He's not going to leave you that way. Praise God. And so here we see that God handles his business. When stuff needs to get taken care of, he takes care of business. And that's the time that had come here. And that's what happens in our lives as well. As Christians, as believers, sometimes when we need to be dealt with, God loves us enough to deal with us. Hebrews 12.5 says this, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you're rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who correct us and we have paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? God loves his children enough to discipline them. Right? God loves His children enough to discipline them just like any good parent. You ever seen uh, a child perhaps out in public and uh, they need to be disciplined and their parent is doing nothing about it? Have you ever seen that before, right? And you're just like, are you not seeing what I'm seeing here? Like, do you need help? Like, I will help you. Like, you want me to help you discipline your child? Like, you know, just saying, you know. But a good parent is going to discipline their child. God's discipline is not to destroy us. It's to correct us and to restore us, right? To reveal the error in our ways and to set us back on the right path. We're headed down the right path and He's going to correct us. And if we don't want to listen, He can, he can help us out with that, right? See, real love, is, it's not soft and weak. Though it is tender, it is not flimsy. Real love is not just kindness, but it also shows strength. And sometimes showing tough love is the kindest thing that you can do. 
right? Enabling and allowing people to continue to do these things. It's not the loving thing to do. Being nice need not be mistaken for true love. Sometimes love needs to be tough because it is strong, because it endures. And so do not make that mistake. As we go on here in verse, verses 14 through 23, we see in the midst of this continued harlotry and though God would discipline and deal with his children, we see the grace and the mercy of God towards Israel. Check out his response. You know, in the midst of, of, of her continued harlotry, you'd probably think, you know, if it happened to, to most of us, we'd probably be like, I'm done. Like, that's it. Like, I gave you how many chances? Right. And it's like these kids that were born, you know, they were born over you know, a span of several years. And it's like every time it's like again, again, again. Really? Now she leaves like you, you want to throw your hands up. But look what it says. Verse 14. But therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her vineyards from there and the valley of Achor as a door of hope and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt and it shall be in that day says the Lord that you shall call me my husband and no longer call me my master for I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the birds of the air and the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I will shatter from the earth and I will make them lie down safely. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. And it shall come to pass in that day, and I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. They shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her whom had not obtained mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Isn't God amazing? Isn't God's love awesome that he would speak of restoration and speak of hope? And so in, in verse 16, you see there, he says, No longer shall you call me master, but you shall call me husband. Because, guys, God's love for us is not, not our relationship with God, rather, is not that uh, as between a master and a servant. It is a relational relationship of love. Christianity is not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's about a relationship with God who knows you, who loves you. He says, I will betroth you to me. These are are, are the the words in the heart of a loving God. And so in the midst of her unfaithfulness, we see this response. That he did not give up. But what did he do? He pursued. Instead of giving up, he continued to pursue and to allure and to speak comfort And so from this, we can see the second characteristic of God's love, which is that God's love is unconditional. God's love is unconditional. Not only did we not do anything to earn God's love, but there's nothing that we can do to cause God to love you more or to cause God to love you less. Right. You didn't earn God's love. So it's not our performance that that God bases his love for us upon. 
And so the thing that we see from this is that God does not love you because of what you've done, but he loves you because of who he is. God doesn't love you because of what you've done, but he loves you because of who he is. It is his character. It is his nature. God is love. And his love cannot be diminished because of our sin. Our sin does not cause God to love us less. Again, that's where we come back to the word, the definition of relentless, meaning no lessening, no uh, diminishing, right? His love endures. And so even when we run from God, his love pursues us. And man, you might feel sometimes like I, I don't deserve this kind of love. Right, man, I, I, I don't deserve to be loved by God, right? And we can kind of get down on ourselves. And it's like, well, you're right. <laughs> you don't. But that's not why God loves you. God doesn't love you because you deserve it. God loves you because of who he is, not because of who we are. Amen? You might think, how could God love me after I've, I've done this? I've done this, I've done that. You might think, how could God love me after I've done that, right? And, and, and Satan would, would tempt you and Satan would lie to you and say, how could God possibly love you? Like, you did that again? Again, seriously. Here we are again. How many times have we been there? How can you go to church like that? How are you going to read your Bible? How are you going to pray after you did that again? And we feel this, this distance and we feel this, this shame. Romans 8, 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There is conviction, right? When we do something wrong, it should draw us to the foot of the cross. It should draw us to repentance. But condemnation is that shame, right, that that causes us to want to run away. And that's how Satan wants to tempt us, to say, you need to run away, you need to run away. No, no, no. You need to run to the cross because sin causes shame and shame tries to pull us away from God. That separation from God. And when we when we are in sin, we feel distant from God. So what are we supposed to do? Run further away from God? Run to the cross. Check this out. Romans 8, 35 says this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are all killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. What does this say to us? It says that the power of God's love is greater than the power of our sin. As we go on to chapter 3, it says this, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman. Wait, let me say this again. Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and the love of the raisin cakes of the pagans, of the pagans so I bought her for myself with 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days and you shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. 
so too will I be towards you. So here, after all of this, you know, she leaves him. And so the Lord calls him and says, go again. Here we go again. One more time. And not only this, not only is she out doing her thing out in the streets, loving other lovers, but now she has actually gotten herself into a situation where she is a slave. She is indebted. She is on the human slave market. And so really through this, we see that what was going to happen with Israel being played out is Israel would be captured and conquered. And so now here, Gomer is in captivity and God calls Hosea and says, go, go find your wife. The principle we need to draw from this though is this, that sin always leads to bondage. Sin always leads to bondage. It is a one-way door. Right? It's always open to come right in, right? We step right in, but you know what? It closes hard behind you. And when we try to get out, it captures, it ensnares. And Satan wants to entice us and to allure us into that which seems so appealing. But once we step into it, he wants to trap us and ensnare us. And so that's what we see in the story here. God tells him, go and find her. She's caught up. She is literally captive. Not only was he told to take her back. But he was told, notice it says, to love her. Not just to take her back, not just to buy her back, but to love her. And so here Hosea has to go. He's called to buy back what was already his. And so perhaps he has to go. He finds her, you know, on an auction block being sold for a price. And here he's called to go and pay a price for a wife that was already his wife. And notice he says, just like the love of the Lord. For Israel. And so with this we see our third characteristic of God's love. That God's love is unending. Unending. God's love is undeserved. God's love is unconditional. And God's love is unending. He had to go. He had to find her. Hosea not only just accepted her, but he loved her. What kind of love does God have for us? Uh, Jeremiah 31.3 says, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That does not quit. It does not cease. You know, some commentators suggest that the, the, the payment for her, some, some silver and some barley, was perhaps because Hosea didn't have enough cash to, to pay for her. And so he had to, to kind of go around and, and find whatever he could to be able to pay the price to set her free. And pay whatever it took to, to get her back. Guys, this is the gospel. Right? This is the image of the gospel of being redeemed. That word redeem is paying the purchase price for someone to be set free. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. Right? That's what Jesus Christ did for us. And when Jesus Christ came, He counted the cost and it cost it all. And He paid that price for you and for me. The slave's price to set us free from the wages of sin and death. And as I... Hosea had to perhaps go into a part of town that the men of God should never go into. Right? Where, where, where these horrible things were going down. In the same way, Jesus Christ came down to the depths. And He came down to rescue us. Jesus had to reach down into dirty places of humanity to come and set us free. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, that He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. He came and, and took upon Himself sin. And He gave to us in exchange 
righteousness. See, coming to Christ, it is an identity change, right? Where Jesus Christ bore the sin and the shame, the, the, the penalty for our sin and the shame of our sin upon himself. And he gives to us in exchange his righteousness. When Hosea went to, to, to find Gomer, he asks, how much is the price? You know, and they tell him this much. He paid the price. When it came to Jesus Christ setting us free, the question was asked, how much? Is it this much? Is it this much? How much? This much. That much. That's how much it costs for Jesus Christ to pay our set and to redeem us and to set us free. He paid with his life. And isn't it crazy to think about the fact that Jesus Christ literally died in the position demonstrating how much he loves us. Essentially to say, I love you this much. And so when we see Jesus, when we see these images of Christ on the cross, we need to, to, to let that pierce our hearts that that's how much he loved us. This much, that he would take nails in his hands, nails in his feet, and give the ultimate price to redeem us and to set us free. Amen? Amen. And so we need to realize from this, with this identity change that, that Christ gives us, that our value does not come from who we are and from what we've done. Our value comes from the price that was paid for us. There is no greater price that could be paid. And that's the value that God has seen in you and in me. And that is where our value comes and we need not forget it. So that having received this love, this this love is transformational. The thing we need to realize when we begin to grasp this love, this unconditional love, this undeserved love, this unending love, is simply this, that although we don't have to change how we live to receive God's love, receiving God's love should change how we live. Amen? Receiving God's love should change how we live. We who have been greatly loved should be those who greatly love. This love is not just incredible. This love is transformational. This love changes everything. Every aspect of our life. This love should change every area, every aspect of our lives. The way that we live, the way that we walk, we should be. We should be walking, living testimonies of the goodness of God. Right? We're not here just to tell people what the Bible says. We are called to be walking, living examples of God's righteousness, of God's love. Is anybody here a testament and a testimony of God's transforming love? Let us proclaim it to the world, not just in what we say. Right? God called Hosea because words were not enough at that time. He said they need to see it. They need to see it. Let the world see what God has done in your life. If God has transformed you, and it should transform you. If you understand this love, if you comprehend this love, if you have received this love, it should transform every area of your life. It should change the way that you see God. It should change the way that you see yourself. It should say, change the way that you see other people. And translate into the way that we treat other people. That we love other people. To not be judgmental. To point the finger at others, but we who have been forgiven much should be those who forgive others much. And so as I bring this to a close, the question I have for us is what position does God hold in your heart? 
Is God your one and only? Or is He only one of many? Are there things competing for the throne of your heart? Are there things that are challenging God's place to reign on that throne and for Him to reign there alone? Because this is ultimately what led the children of Israel. This is ultimately what led Gomer to to leave Hosea. It wasn't just outright rejection. It was allowing other things in simply and subtly. And we need to remember that when God found us, we were in these chains. When we were found by Him, He had to pay this purchase price for us. And so we need not allow the world's cheap imitation of what love is to taint or twist our understanding of God's love and allow God's love to transform our lives. It is God's goodness that leads to repentance. Romans 2, 4 says, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And so maybe that's you. Maybe, maybe you need to repent here today. Maybe there's stuff competing in your heart for the throne of your heart. I encourage you, the Bible says, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Guys, let me tell you this. When, when we see God, many people see God's hand and they see the, this finger of judgment pointed to condemn them, to destroy them, to, to, to ruin them, to give them judgment. Guys, God's hand, when we're in sin, is not this finger pointing judgment. It is a nail-scarred hand reaching down to pull you up, to dust you off, and put you where you need to go. Guys, when, you, when we are in sin, we are to not run from the cross, but run to the cross. Run to, run to the one who paid the price to pay your debt to set you free. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for your love, God. We thank you for your endless love, your unconditional love, your mercy upon us, Lord, undeserved. And God, I pray that we would comprehend that, Lord, in a way that is transformational in our lives. Lord, let us not claim to have received that love and continue to walk as we walked before and and to continue to walk as the rest of the world would walk, Lord. God, I just pray you do the work in each and every heart, Lord. You know every situation. You know every heart here. You know where we come from. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just minister to each and every heart. Lord, if, if, if there's repentance that needs to happen, Lord, would you convict hearts even now, Lord? Not that, that condemnation that would draw us from the cross, but that, that kindness, that love that draws us to repentance. That our hearts would be clear. And if that's you and you're here and you need to do that, I encourage you, just between yourself and the Lord, to confess, to lay aside, to turn away from whatever has turned you and turned your eyes away from the Lord, to fix your eyes on Him and to run, run with endurance towards the author, the finisher of our faith. Allow Him to heal you. Allow Him to restore you. Lord, would you... Work in us, Lord, that our lives would demonstrate, that our lives would display a life that has been transformed by a love unknown to the rest of the world. A unique love, a powerful love that's incomprehensible. That we would live a life that draws the question, what is it about us, Lord? 
Fill us with your spirit. Empower us, we pray, Lord God. Thank you for this time, Lord. Minister to your children. And we lift this time to you. In Jesus' name.